great pleasure to welcome Nicholas Bolch, uh, Nick Bolch. Uh, Nick is uh, somebody who's done a lot of work on the so-called impossible theatre of, of, of Lorca. Uh, I know he's translated and directed his, whole, his own version of uh, Public. Uh, and he's currently a research student at Birkbeck College in London, and he's on secondment to the Actors' Centre. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Nick Bolch, who's just brought up my, my talk for mistake. Uh, uh, after this, we'll have about 15 or 20 minutes for questions and, uh, and comments before we go into the coffee and then the, the play next one. Whenever you're ready, Nick. Um, well, yes. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure to uh, to be speaking in such august company as uh, the other people who've been uh, been presenting to you this afternoon. Um, yeah, so today I'm going to talk about uh, Lorca's Impossible Theatre. Uh, the subtitle I've, I've somewhat arbitrarily given it is El Publico Comedian Titulo and the Authority of the Theatre, although I realised as I was writing it that uh, a more accurate subtitle might be trying to explain El Publico in 20 minutes. Um, so, uh, yes, so I'm going to talk about two of uh, Lorca's lesser-known and infrequently performed plays, uh, one of which is called The Public, uh, and one of which we're going to be privileged to see uh, a production of today is uh, Play Without a Title. Um, as Catherine uh, mentioned earlier, there is a, a third play that's often uh, considered part of the, uh, the Impossible Theatre. It's called When Five Years Pass. Uh, I've chosen not to speak about that today for reasons of time, because I'm more interested in the other two. Um, so, first of all, I quickly want to talk about why it is that these plays are considered impossible. Um, it's quite a charged word. And it's simply because, more than any of Lorca's other works, uh, these are plays that draw on experimental, anti-naturalist dramatic techniques and deal with complex, uh, difficult, and often controversial issues, uh, which make them difficult for theatres to stage and difficult for us as spectators to uh, unpick and understand. And actually, this impossibility is something that uh, Lorca himself acknowledged on any number of occasions. Um, for instance, he told an Argentine newspaper called La Nación in 1933 that he had no intention of staging the public uh, because, as you see, rather than being a work to be performed, it's a poem to be hissed at. Um, I find this, this quotation very interesting. I'm not going to read the whole thing of it because, frankly, it has time. But um, there's a lovely bit in the middle about how it puts on stage the, the personal dramas that e each one of the spectators is thinking about. Uh, I'm going to come back to that idea uh, a bit later on. Uh, so I became very interested in these plays because it seemed to me that they represent uh, a side of Lorca as an artist that isn't often talked about, particularly in the country. Uh, as some of the previous speakers have, have talked about, we've often come to think of Lorca as uh, a kind of icon of Spanishness. We associate, associate him indelibly with the landscape of, of southern Spain. Um, and for me, the, the impossible plays have, have all the, the, the fire and lyricism of, of Lorca's better-known pieces. Uh, you know, they're, they're cruel and, and beautiful and erotic and romantic, just as his other work is. Uh, but also find him at his most raw and uh, iconoclastic. Um, I quickly want to do, well, I was going to call it a show of hands, but with the interest of the tape, I guess I'll call it an interactive exercise. Um, I just want a quick idea of uh, who knows these plays? Um, anyone pop a hand up in here? I don't want to spend 20 minutes explaining the plot to a bunch of people that know it already. Um, not many. It's, it's not a great surprise. These, these shows are very rarely done and very rarely uh, talked about. Um, I think it is important to say that they don't represent a, 
a mere flirtation with the experimental on the part of Lorca. Um, because, uh, as we've seen from some of the other presentations today, throughout his career as uh, a playwright and poet and artist, he was constantly engaged uh, with the new and uh, the avant-garde. People have spoken about his first play, The Butterfly's Evil Spell, uh, a very symbolist piece uh, with its hopeless love story between a cockroach and, and a butterfly that, uh, as someone I think Sarah mentioned, was uh, laughed off stage uh, by, its, uh, by its first audience. Uh, so also Lorca's first experience of rejection by a theatre audience. Um, but despite that, he continued to, uh, to develop his use of experimental techniques through playlists like uh, Buster Keaton Goes for Stroll, his film script Voyage to the Moon, and later plays like uh, When Five Years Pass. And the reason that I've chosen here to focus on the public and play without a title is that they represent him at his creative extreme. <coughs> uh, so, firstly, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, Lorca's attitude to and philosophy of theatre. Uh, and I, I know that this is something that Catherine's already spoken about. Happily, I think I managed to make many of the same points by using entirely separate quotations. Um, so this comes through impassioned ideas about the role of the theatre in uh, so many of his works, from, from his earliest uh, works onwards. And also, uh, as Catherine said, in interviews that he gave, uh, lectures that he gave, letters that he wrote, uh, where he expresses himself eloquently and forcefully on the subject of the theatre and its place in the world. So, uh, as Catherine touched on, in common with many of his contemporaries, Locker was highly concerned by the conspicuous lack of innovation and social purpose in the Spanish theatre of his age. Uh, his own induction into modernism once he moved to uh, the Cosmopolitan Student House in Madrid must have been dizzyingly rapid, but it, it would certainly put him at some odds with the theatrical mainstream of uh, 1920s and 1930s Spain. Uh, because in many ways the, the theatre of that period had, had fallen victim to its own success. In commercial terms it was vastly and, and lucratively popular. Uh, but the flip side of that was that authors and producers became very reluctant to compromise their, their comfortable situation by innovating or experimenting or offending the core values of their audience beyond certain socially acceptable limits. So the result was a sort of inflexible dramatic conservatism that was both ideological and aesthetic in nature. If you look at plays from this period, many of them barely differ from each other in terms of setting. Um, they stick to the same sort of instantly familiar model of talking head conversations in a, in a domestic setting. And, and this became a sort of archetypal vicious cycle with audiences coming to demand those familiar elements from their theatrical experience, while authors became very fearful of disrupting that horizon of expectation. Now, for Lorca, this was a supremely crucial problem. Uh, he was critical, frankly, of just about everybody involved in the whole thing. Um, starting with the audience, very critical of the, the superficial taste of uh, the theatre-going public. For instance, he said that uh, the serious thing is that people who go to the theatre don't want to be made to think about any moral issue. Uh, but he also uh, directed a lot of disdain at the impresarios who presided over what he and his circle saw, as Catherine said, as a crisis in drama. Um, in that same interview in 1934, he said, uh, the fact that someone, merely by having a few millions, can set himself up as a censor of plays and a regulator of the theatre is intolerable and shameful. It's tyranny. So uh, some very emotive kind of language used there to describe the role of these theatre managers. Um, in a letter to his family in 1926, he wrote, this business of impresarios is the most nauseating thing in the world because they're like beasts. Spanish theatre today is in the hands of the worst kind of riffraff. 
They're comedians as much as authors. So the problem for Lorca was that in the hands of this management and with the demands of this audience, the theatre had come to lack any kind of social or uh, educative authority, so that its artistic and educational role had been lost. Uh, and in his lecture, Charla Sobre Teatro, he spoke passionately of his fear that the development of Spanish theatre was being held back, both for discouraged potential playwrights and for a public who might never be given the chance to experience the full social potential of theatre. Uh, so yes, the theatre is one of the most expressive and useful instruments for the education of the country. A school of sorrow and laughter, a free platform where old or mistaken morals can be exposed, where we can explain with living examples the eternal laws of the heart and of human emotion. And that's what he thought and believed so passionately that the theatre of his age was not achieving. Um, so in that Chalas Sobre Teatro, he, he goes on to argue that uh, the theatre must impose itself on the public, not the public on the theatre. To do this, actors and authors must carry themselves with great authority, even at the cost of blood. And so what I'm going to suggest today is that it's this central question, the issue of the theatre's authority in its relationship with the public, that defines the, the, these two impossible plays. And it's Lorca's answers to these questions that form his most important artistic legacy. Um, so I'm going to start off by talking about The Public, uh, which is a play with uh, a long and complex and compelling history. Uh, and starts back at the end of the 1920s. Uh, so this is a period when a number of strands in Lorca's artistic and personal life are coming together. Uh, so after suffering a nervous breakdown, he left Spain for a lengthy visit to the United States. And as Paul, as Paul said, um, he found his experiences of American society in New York confusing and alienating, but artistically inspirational, and they were the catalyst for uh, a poet in New York. Um, and similarly, stimulated by uh, the American theatrical avant-garde, he continued thinking about the nature of theatre, and he eventually concluded that theatre in Spain had to simply change or die. Uh, he wrote to his family in 1929 from New York, uh, we have to think of the theatre of the future. Everything that exists now in Spain is dead. Theatre must either change root and branch or be finished forever. There's no other solution. Um, sorry. And actually in the same letter he goes on to add that uh, he's begun work on uh, quote, a bit of a theatre that might prove interesting. Uh, that's the first reference that we have to the public. So he continued to work on the piece during, uh, after he left America, his subsequent tour of, of Latin America, and he began to read extracts from it to his friends. And history records that most of them seem to have reacted with a kind of amused incomprehension. Um, as we've seen, he, he claimed on numerous occasions that the piece was unperformable, but he also considered it exemplary of the kind of work that he wished to produce. He told friends in 1930 the best thing he'd written for the theatre. Um, his friend Rafael Martínez Nadal recalls that he greeted negative reactions to, to it, not with resentment, but with confidence. Uh, after one reading, he predicted that in 10 or 20 years, it will be a great success. Mm. Although, of course, this was something that he never lived to see, because, uh, as I'm sure we know, he was executed at the start of the Spanish Civil War. Um, there, the story of the public might simply have ended. However, on his last day in Madrid, the 16th of July, 1936, he entrusted a package to Martínez Nadal with instructions to destroy it in the event of his death or disappearance. And among other, uh, among other papers, that package proved to contain uh, five scenes, draft copies of the five extant scenes of the public. And we owe the play's survival into the modern day uh, only to Martínez Nadal's 
decidedly economical interpretation of Lorca's request. Uh, he decided that the instructions could not possibly apply to that manuscript. Um, he was persuaded not to publish it until a more complete version could be found. Uh, the surviving manuscript is, as I said, an, an incomplete draft. Uh, Martínez Nadal was convinced that at least two full versions of it existed, since he came into direct contact with both. Uh, but their fate in the aftermath of Locke's death and the general chaos of the civil war is unknown into the present day. So after many years had passed with no such full version coming to light, he eventually published a study of the manuscript with excerpts in 1970 and an edition of the full script in 1978, over 40 years after Locke's untimely death. The first professional production was staged at the Teatro Maria Guerrero in Madrid in 1987. It was directed by Luis Pascual, and it was followed the next year by the English language premiere at the Theatre Royal Stratford East, <coughs> directed by Lutz. Um, I actually have with me, if anyone is interested to look at it, um, the programme from that production, although I'm afraid I have to guard you if you look at it, because I've borrowed it from the archive of Stratford East, and they're horribly concerned that I'm going to lose it, going on they've got. Um, so for the benefit of people who have no idea what this play looks like or sounds like or does, uh, I should briefly explain what it's about. Uh, and that can actually be done deceptively simply. Um, the basic plot is as follows. A, a successful <coughs> theatre director is challenged to produce a new form of theatre that will display authentic truths on stage. Uh, his experiment fails as the audience violently reject it, riot, and put many of the participants to death. That's essentially it. Uh, the trouble with that brief synopsis is that it's totally and utterly inadequate because in outlining the basic story, it fails to describe so much of what the public is about, so many of the theatrical and social layers that are built on top of the basic plot. I'll have a stab at explaining those in a moment. Um, the reason explanation is difficult is because the public is memorably and beguilingly weird. Um, those of you that haven't read it, I urge you to go home and, and do so. It's an astonishing experience. Um, Catherine used a lovely phrase earlier where she said, speaking of the word resistant, I think it was, that uh, meaning moves through it. It's a phrase I intend to make my own as soon as her back is turned. Um, <laughs> this is a play that meaning moves through. Uh, and it's mo meaning moves through it for a huge variety of reasons. Firstly, uh, as I've already mentioned, it's very consciously anti-naturalist dramatic technique. Um, because what we have of the public is an unfinished manuscript, it's difficult to know quite how many of its peculiarities are intentional features or, or just mistakes in the draft. What's very clear, though, is that the play goes considerably beyond anything else in Lorca's other work. Um, the structure of the piece... Oh, sorry, I'm totally standing in your way, aren't I? Um, the structure of the piece is episodic, um, fragmented, and ultimately circular. It starts and ends in the same place and um, with the same character that it began. Time is fluid, space shifts without warning, characters are shown in, in varying forms as level of, levels of consciousness and subconsciousness are superimposed on each other. The piece dives intertextually in and out of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Um, visually, <coughs> stunning piece, the sets adopt you know, garish colours and hugely distorted architecture, typical of expressionist theatre actually. Um, the director's study, for example, it has a huge handprint painted on the wall and x-ray plates instead of windows. Um, costumes are given vivid anti-naturalist stylings. Uh, as some of uh, the other speakers have touched on, the, the choreography is hugely important in the show. Movement and dance repeatedly incorporated into the play's visuality. Stage directions, many of which would have been completely impossible to, to carry out in, in the theatre of Lorca's age. 
Um, the language itself used as a, a means for achieving a rapid juxtaposition of honestly dizzying successions of, of images, unrelated images, uh, complex overlapping of, of reality and dream that offers almost no concession to logical organisation or to the comfort <coughs> of the spectator. Um, if the play is so innovative and, and daring in terms of dramatic technique, it's equally, if not more so, in terms of, of its subject matter. Particularly so when considered as a play dating from the 1930s, and incredibly so when considered as a play dating from Spain in the 1930s. Um, it spins its story into two principal themes. Uh, the treatment of each one is fascinatingly intertwined with the treatment of the other, so that they become two sides of the same coin. Uh, those two themes are, firstly, love and sexuality, secondly, the nature and the purpose of theatre. Sexuality is a hugely important part of the public. It's uncompromising depiction of, of homosexuality is probably what it's best known for as a play amongst Locke's other work. Um, however, as, I, as I've said, what I want to talk about today mostly is what the public has to say about the theatre, and there simply isn't time to, to go into its complex and profound treatment of sexuality. You need three conferences. Um, so I'm only going to touch on it here in a, in a brief and sadly inadequate fashion. Um, so sexuality makes its presence felt very early in, in the drama. The director's attempt to portray these truths on stage forces its participants to discard the pretenses that they've adopted in society and reveal their true selves, exposing their private desires and concealed sexualities with often graphic candor. Um, now, the portrayal in the public of the acceptability of homosexuality to society at large is certainly not encouraging. Uh, overbearingly moralistic characters such as the Centurion of Act Two illustrate the repression that destructive social prejudices can inflict on forms of love that are designated forbidden. Other homosexual characters are shown to be entangled in a web of, of guilt, humiliation and pretense that prefigures their intense fear of exposing their sexual identity to scrutiny. Um, David has already noted how much this meshes with Lorca's own experience of, of Spain of this era. A key theme, though, in the play's depiction of sexuality is the notion that sexual nature is immutable, that love is a force not of human agency and ultimately beyond human control, uh, a force that acts without regard to the identity of its object. Um, it's an idea that the piece returns to again and again and again, most clearly in the very final scene, when the conjurer mentions the example of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, he says, if love is pure chance, and Titania, queen of the elves, falls in love with an ass, then by the same reasoning, there's nothing odd in Gonzalo's drinking in a music hall with a boy in white perched on his knee. Uh, the point of this, to me, seems to be to demonstrate the arbitrariness with which conventional social morality lords some categories of human relationship while condemning <coughs> others, just as Lorca seeks to confront society's unwillingness to accept new thought-provoking forms of theatre, here he attacks its opposition to the fortuity of love, demonstrating how such opposition can twist forbidden relationships to cruelty, and perhaps most powerfully forcing the spectator, you and I, to acknowledge and confront our own investment in the prejudices, excuse me, prejudices, horrible word to say, of the society that we form part of. Um, so yes, now onto the main thing that I want to talk about, what the public <laughs> has to say about the theatre. Uh, so the lead character, the director here, uh, initially favours a theatre of the open air. Uh, it's a form of theatre whose shallowness is very quickly exposed, as the director admits that he doesn't, in directing, consider the inner motivations and thoughts of his characters. It's soon established that the director's sinister visitors, the three men, are passionate advocates of another form of theatre, the theatre beneath the sand, 
that's constructed as more authentic. It demands the revelation of hidden truths and communicates reality that the theatre of the open air has hitherto avoided. The director's fearful reluctance to accept this form of theatre is overcome, and the theatre beneath the sun is stretched. Ultimately, it turns out a production of Romeo and Juliet, in which Romeo is played by a 30-year-old man and Juliet by a boy of 15. Uh, chaos and a violent riot ensue. The audience clamour for the death of the director. Uh, although he manages to escape, the actor playing Juliet is swiftly killed, and the actor playing Romeo is lingeringly crucified as the rioting public burned down the theatre. So, not what you would call a happy ending. Um, much of the information that we get about this failure of the theatre beneath the sand is communicated to us in the play through a, a lively debate between a group of students. And actually in it, there's some disagreement as to why such an extreme reaction was prompted. Um, the, the two key things, uh, the first two, is the chaos started when they saw that Romeo and Juliet were really in love. The second student says it was the opposite. It was started when they saw that they weren't in love and never could be. So in, in other words, it's unclear whether the audience has objected to the performance being too lifelike or too unbelievable. Um, one character even claims to have been alerted to the deception by, of all things, the uh, femininity of Juliet's feet. He says they were too small to be a woman's feet, too perfect and too feminine. <laughs> so in that case, it's actually been the completeness of the illusion itself that's exposed its fraudulence, which just intensifies the absurdity of the audience's reaction. So like the typical Spanish commercial theatre audience of Locus time, the audience of the theatre beneath the sand had been unable to accept anything challenging, even if they themselves are not aware enough to properly contextualise and understand their own violent reactions. The final scene of the play, the director conclusively rejects the country's defence of the illusory precepts of the theatre of the open air, arguing that breaking down all the doors is the only way drama can justify itself. Though his aim to revolutionise theatre through this, uh, through this experiment had been defeated, he refuses to repudiate his beliefs. Um, and there's a lovely chunk of dialogue here. Um, actually reveals some of the poetic imagery that the public uses so often. Um, the proposition that the director is arguing for here so eloquently, showing that where Romeo and Juliet suffer and die, only to leap up smiling when the curtain falls, his characters die for real, um, seems to be the notion for barriers between reality and the world of the stage to be broken down, for actors and audiences to occupy the same space, and for the distinction between doing and merely representing to become irrelevant. Um, I wonder if you notice the slight contradiction, that actually Lorca has dramatised in the public the brutal failure of precisely the new kind of theatre that we might expect him to advocate. Um, but if, as I've suggested, what the public represents is uh, an intense indictment of uh, an audience ideologically unprepared to accept anything theatrically different, then I think that that apparent contradiction need not necessarily be settled, uh, because I'd suggest that actually Lorca quite deliberately presents what looks like an irresolvable inconsistency. Uh, if theatre can only realise its potential through the elimination of barriers between audience and performance, <coughs> but will in doing so inevitably destroy itself, then it's inherently impossible. Um, and in fact, the, the director himself acknowledges the hopelessness of that situation with his first words in the final scene. He says that a conjurer can't sort out this business, neither can a doctor or an astronomer or anyone. But nevertheless, theatre exists, and of course the argument over its impossibility is of course here explored through a dramatic work. Um, I think that paradox, uh, which is kind of both delightful and tragic at the same time, is eminently Lorcan. Um, so I want to quickly talk then about Play Without a Title. As we're about to be privileged to see a rare performance of it, I'm going to confine my remarks on it to a very general level and try not to give away too much of what happened. Um, 
It was a work in progress at the time of Lorca's death in 1936, and uh, like the public, remained unpublished until the late 1970s. Uh, and most of our knowledge of its history comes from the actress and Lorca's friend, Margarita Chirbo. Um, she recalled Lorca reading to her parts of an untitled three-act play on several occasions in the 1930s. Her memories of Act One correspond very closely to the text that we have in the title. It's a metatheatrical piece in which the author comes on stage to rebuke the audience for the superficiality of their theatrical tastes, while spectators in the auditorium engage in rigorous argument. Act Two, which was then partly written, was to be set in a morgue, and Act Three, which remained unwritten in heaven. Uh, Martínez Nadal has identified many similarities between the play without a title and the missing scene of the public. In particular, the arrival of the revolution at the theatre occurs entirely off stage in the public and on stage here in, in play without a title. And he speculates that Lorca may have used the scene from the public as the basis of the new work. And certainly there are a lot of, of clear connections between the two in terms of subject matter. Again, the focus is the nature and role of theatre. Again, the audience will accept theatre only if it's pleasing, inoffensive and artificial. Again, the central character intends to break down boundaries between the world and the stage and the audience. Uh, again, the action overlaps with the Shakespeare play here with A Midsummer Night's Dream and then briefly Macbeth. Um, and again, the outcome of that overlap between the theatre and real life is revolution, violence and death. Um, but there are also very important differences. Uh, as we'll see in a moment when we see the show, um, Play Without Title breaches much more completely than the public the division between itself and its real-life audience. It turns the whole auditorium into a playing space and brings in not only actors and spectators, but also stagehands, musicians and revolutionaries. Uh, where in the public, the audience that's condemned for its lack of taste is on the stage and internal to the drama, in Play Without Title, the audience is ourselves. Um, and when the revolution arrives, it does so not from within the theatre, but from outside, from our, our own world. So, where in the public the director's plans are foiled by manifestations of his own nightmarish fears and inadequacies, here it's spectators, audience members like you and I, who advance the theatrical debate. And as fits a piece that intrudes itself much more firmly into the real world, uh, the public is, uh, where the public is a work that concerns itself with grand social problems, Play Without a Title takes that debate in a much more explicitly political direction. The arrival of the revolution in the theatre wraps the games of metatheatre into issues of ideology and class and warfare, as the actors and the spectators argue over whether to support or suppress the uprising. Um, this is a function of the period of the play's composition. Uh, the early 1930s, a time of, of great unrest and crisis as the Second Spanish Republic began to collapse, and artists and writers began to become explicitly politicised. But it also suggests uh, a further extension of Lorca's thinking about the role of the theatre. Just as in the public, the superficial theatre that Lorca despised so much is criticised and rejected, it is here too. But here, the need for the theatre to manifest a social authority is related very explicitly to history and to the advancement of a political agenda. And I hope that we'll be able to develop some of those ideas uh, in the discussion that will follow the staging about the title. So, um, I hope coming to the end, I've shown how Lorca's thinking about the theatre and its purpose in the world is brought through in these two exceptional plays as a passionate defence of its social and political potential. Um, the impossible plays for me actually become statements about their own possibility. If they're impossible to perform in the current moment, it's because the theatre lacks the authority to make them perform, to, to force its audience to accept a challenge to their preconceptions. 
Um, Lorca, I think, would argue that they're difficult to stage and uncomfortable to watch, not because they're unreal, but because they try to evoke and expose fundamental truths about ourselves as spectators. This was the idea of our personal dramas, he put it in the interview that I quoted at the very beginning. And it's in this sense that when the theatre is strong enough to confront its audiences with themselves, uh, that the impossible plays become possible. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we are running slightly late, but I think we'll take about five or ten minutes of, of questions or comments. If anyone has any, uh, certainly points can be raised later on in the round table, so uh, we won't cut ourselves too short. But if anyone has any immediate issues for either Paul, uh, who took us through a, a whole survey of much of Lorca's writing, or, or Nick, who concentrated very much on the, on the impossible theatre. Yes. Can I just ask a, 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 an ignorant question? I was very struck by the puppet theatre theme. I just wondered if there was any connection with Oriental theatre or Japanese theatre. I don't know of any. I mean, do you? I mean, I, I, the whole idea, the, the, the whole idea of puppets were were quite um, fashionable from the sort of end of the nineteenth century. Onwards and and, and um, Faya, whom we, we talked about earlier. Not, I mean, this is in the early twenties, I suppose. Was a, a, a habitué of a woman called the Princesse de Polignac, who was a, 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 a hostess who did puppet plays, and no doubt that sort of reflected, um, a, a, I don't know, Parisian um, fashion to a certain extent, and the gamut of Indonesian theatre that influenced Debussy. But I can't tell you in. Terms of uh, of time, I don't know whether Locke himself was very cognizant. Do you? Uh, don't know. I mean, what drew I think Locke particularly to well, the Spanish traditions themselves was uh, was yeah, that its tradition in Spain and also the notion that it, it took him away entirely from the sort of the bourgeois commercial theatre that I'd been talking about in the presentation. It put him much more in contact theatrically with uh, ordinary people, like pueblo, as he, he used to constantly talk about in, in his writings. Um, so that was. It's that and its its role within Spain that, that attracts him to it. It may be that there's some cross fertilisation with um, with other puppet theatre traditions, but uh, and Faya um, and Locke arranged uh, a puppet theatre thing, didn't they? Uh, following the Cantejondo um, uh, um, festival, when I'm in in 23, I think. So is that right? Something like that. It, it let him do a lot of the things that he wanted to do in terms of integration of art forms uh, and things like that entirely separately from this world of impresarios and, and actors and uh, a well-heeled theatrical public. It's, it's, a, it's childish theatre. Above all, I mean quite literally that he used to play around with a little puppet theatre when he was a little boy, but it, it's, it's getting back to a sort of innocence and an artless theatre, which is in another way very artful. But that, that was getting away from the, the standard structures of bourgeois theatre, yes. And he articulates it in those terms, doesn't he? Childishness, magic, um, is what he was up. I'd like to ask what parallels you saw that prompted the question. Well, um, it was partly thinking of Yates, and his interest in Japanese, because he yeah. was also wanting to get something completely away from naturalistic theatre. And the fact that that is actually quite strong in Japanese theatre now, I think. Um, there was a wonderful production of Pericles a few years ago at Honda, by Ninigawa, 
using puppets, mm. absolutely stark out. They had human beings being the puppets, mm. as, as you've been told the story. So is that, that motif is very strong. You're right, he's, he's going for something much more populist that goes back into European and Spanish tradition. It's interesting you should mention it, it's because you know, the standard wisdom is to compare Lorca to, to Singh. And so I've always thought that the, the parallels with the Yeats and the theatre of ritual and spectacle yeah. are actually much, much more potent yeah. in Lorca. Definitely very influenced by, by Yeats, particularly if you look at plays like the, his first play, The Butterfly's Evil Spell, the, the influence of, of Yeats is all over it, I think. Did he know Yeats? Uh, I don't know, but he must have read it. Well, really, what you've been saying is that Lorca is Yeats and Singh. Yeah, it's got these both dimensions, and that's why he's so mysterious. No, no, absolutely, because clearly there are there are, there are emphases on sexuality, on on, on, on a very vivid and uh, stylized language form uh, that, that masquerades as, as populism. Uh, I'm thinking of my childhood, and my father had a small theater, and when before the war. And at that time, also in a film about Tigris Mussolini, they have this little theater. And at home, we used to be told this character came in and decided that. And that was part of the tradition of Spain, of the middle class, in those times. And I'm sure Lorca also had one of these theaters. And he used to represent at home, play things, you know, with the, with the kids. So it means it's part of the growing up. I did it when, when I was young. So at home. So it's, I'm sure that I don't think there is anything to do with Japan. I never read one word about Japan in Lorca, and I have been reading him for many, many years. Lorca, Lorca was one of these sort of writers had his antennae very firmly out there, and anything that was in the air, he sort of took it in. And you, know, you, you more or less said that as well, you know, uh, or sorry, Paul said it in terms of Leon Felipe and Whitman and so on. He he assimilated a lot that, that, that was out there, and certainly in the, the student residence. Uh, there was a whole series of talks and speakers coming through, mm. so it is possible. You know, it's it's, uh, it's possible he was picking stuff up. And In fact, didn't Yeats go to the residencia? Now I come to think of it, I think he I was. A, I, I think he did. It's on the edge of my mind that he, H. G. Wells did. I mean, I think I think Yeats did go. I'm not. I won't swear to it. He's quite likely to, wouldn't he? If Yeats had gone, yes. Yeah, yes. I won't. I won't swear to that. Yeah, yeah, you're putting your hand. Sorry, 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 I was going to say the, the flip side is that in, in many ways it becomes almost fruitless to talk about things that influenced Lorca. I once, as an undergraduate, wrote an almost entirely pointless essay about artistic influences on the public um, because there were just so many. He, he was so involved with everything and picked so many, cherry picked so many things from everywhere. You can talk about his work within the traditions of almost any ism that you choose. Um, and uh, he was very alive to possibilities offered by different people and different kinds of artistic movement. I'm, I'm sure your essay wasn't entirely pointless, but of course, one of the emphases of the academic world is to be systematic. So if it was systematically pointless, that's probably very well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hetia, you had your hand up. Hi, I'm Hetia from Warwick University. I was just wondering, uh, what do you think Lorca really wanted from his audience in terms of attitudes towards <coughs> action and change? Because uh, the provocation of uh, of the impossible plays, and then kind of the rural tragedies, and the sense of emptiness and absolute um, unchangeability of the status quo that you're faced with. 
And kind of on one side, it's like, this is what our society is like, nothing is going to change. What are you going to do to break out of the circle? And then on the other side, there's, what should the audience do? Is there kind of room for provocation? Is he trying to incite some kind of action from them? Um, it's difficult to say, is I'm afraid, a slightly cheap response to that. Um, it, it's interesting, actually, as one of the things that Catherine talked of was the way that he talked about his plays that weren't his impossible plays. Um, he talked about, you know, writing these, um, these plays to, to have a, a right, to have an authority, to give him a, a right to talk to people in the theatre. So I think he saw them as um, being the things that he could do in the theatre of his age, um, that put him in a position where he was able to try and say to people, this is what I want from a theatre audience. What he wanted, I think, um, was um, an audience that wouldn't simply reject offhand anything that differed from what their expectations were. Um, but also, he wanted an audience that that was much, much wider than, than the people who went to the commercial theatre in Spain in that period. Actually, that was something that, in the later part of his life, he became hugely involved with. He went on, uh, he became the director of a, a touring university theatre company called La Baraca that took uh, classic Spanish plays out into the, you know, the, village, the peasant villages of Spain in that period. Um, so he was so passionately committed to the notion of, of theatre as education. He wanted an audience that would go to the theatre prepared to be educated. One last question, Catherine. I just wanted to comment on that because I think that's really interesting. I think you were mentioning uh, the last uh, dialogue with El Público, which I think is one of the most beautiful things that I wrote the dialogue with and the director. And, and I think it does, it's the moment where he dramatizes what you're talking about this, the, this enormous uh, tension between possibility and impossibility. And I think what he also dramatizes is the impossibility of the audience. Although I think it probably was out there, but it's still an impossible moment, which is what makes it really impossible. And where he's writing, and, and part of the thing about his, his theatre theory, I think, is that he's writing it and, and demonstrating it in Apollo but he's also writing it into his other place, it's his other place as well. I think that's part of, to me, that would be part of the answer that the audience is. Maybe he is performing, he plays have been performing to incredibly learned audiences as well, who are also very much in tune with their times. It's a very it's a very complex mix of possibility and, and impossibility, but it's ideal audiences suppose, like anybody's ideal audiences in history. Which is Bunuelesk as well. You know, I saw this which is another layer of our public or it sort of anticipates a lot of what Bunuel did after after the war, I think, after yes, we moved. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. I think we'll, uh, we'll pause there. Uh, just to say that both Paul and Nick will be involved in the subsequent roundtables as well.